Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Okay, now we're recording. Hi everyone, welcome to the program. Tonight is going to be our 22nd cheer. Baruch Hashem, the platform is really, really exploding. Um, I want to again thank all our viewers for every week coming on, putting it on the WhatsApp statuses, telling their friends about it, and really getting it out there. Um, we're getting tremendous feedback. Um, we had really, really, um, we started this right at the beginning of COVID, and um, me and Menachem did not realize that it would turn into something like this, but it uh, definitely exploded, and it's an amazing program, and we're really thankful. And I think everybody comes in every week and tells everybody about it. Um, I want to give a personal shvach to Hashem this week. I was blessed with a baby boy that was born to me. I just want to say publicly in front of everybody. Nachman, Nachman, can I say the whole nishmas now? Is everybody okay? Mazel tov. I'll say the whole, I'll say the whole nishmas. But I really want to say thank you to Hashem. Baruch Hashem, we have a beautiful child. And it's, uh, thank you, Hashem. We had a program about that. I want to give a special thank you to our advertising sponsors. Uh, the, Lake, the advertising sponsors, Lakewood Scoop, always pushing us here in Lakewood. I want to give a special thank you to Rabbi and Yaniv from Chazak for always promoting our program on all their platforms. Please go to chazak.org for more information. I'd like to give a thank you to Mrs. Mika Sofer from CL Alive from always pushing on our website. And a special thanks to JC and Jewish Content Network, Kyla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer, who actually I was just talking to him three minutes ago because we had to get the ads correct. And he works literally um, on the second. I really, really appreciate it this week for getting it uh, worked out and promoting us on all the Jewish digital platforms. Again, the program exploded. Uh, we have one more program before Shoshana with Rep. Simon Jacobson. We're going to be discussing next week how to go into Tufshin Pei Aleph uh, with the right mindset after what we've been through through, through Tufshin Pei. So uh, it's going to be interesting how to you know get ready for Shoshana. We're going to be taking a little uh, break. Every single Yom Tiv lands on Sunday. So we're going to take a little break till October 18th, which Shem tentatively we have uh, scheduled Rabbi Elephant from the Mirror discussing how to raise healthy children in today's complex world, which should be a, an amazing share as well. Um, let's start with Coach Menachem. Please open up. Welcome everyone to another show and let's get real with Coach Menachem. And uh, tonight you get the shout outs. A big mazel tov and from the whole Oilem. You and your Rebetzin, the whole Meshpachri, Yishti Nachas, and the Bris Shabibi Itar, Vizmanoi, Metz Hashem. So tonight's topic, how pain shapes our life. A vulnerable look on pain and suffering. Now, I'm sure everybody had a different um, interpretation or different feelings they got when they see this topic. But before we go into the, the pain and suffering that we're going to be discussing tonight, I would like to talk a little bit from a, a coach's point of view, how in a smaller scale, it, it, how it makes a difference. So most people, they have a fear of um, anything that's unknown or a fear of failing, the fear of uh, feeling any negative emotion, the negative feelings, and therefore they choose subconsciously to stay inside what is called their comfort zone, where, you know, where they are, what they do, the things they do, they stay in their familiar places, they try not to go into any new things, taking risks, which is scary. And pretty much they can predict what their day will look like. And it sounds good, but the thing is that 
human nature needs to grow. We need to, we can't stay where we are. And if you do stay in one place for too long, doing the same thing every day, you start feeling something. Everybody has a different feeling, whatever it is. And you start questioning, what am I doing? What am I looking for? Sometimes you can suppress those and tell yourself, this is life, let me just continue. You don't want to open the can of worms to say, maybe I want to do something else. In order to feel the positive emotions in life, we need to be ready to be able to feel negative emotions because we can't be selective. And this is something that I've learned in the past and uh, many people know about it, but a lot of people, when I mention this to them, they, the first time they hear this, it's hard to understand. You know, the positive emotions you'll take, no problem. You're ready for it. But the negatives you close, you shut down. You don't want to feel them. But, but this, is, this is what the story is. It's either you feel or you don't feel. And if you want to feel the positive emotions, automatically you're going to, uh, going to meet yourself with some negative emotions. So what, what happens when we do start feeling a little bit of those negative emotions? Everybody has different ways how they suppress. Um, I'm not going into the big, uh, big things we're going to be discussing tonight about um, addiction. I'm not even going to the real addictions, even keeping yourself busy. It could be at work, workaholic, or you don't have to be a workaholic, but just keeping yourself busy making money, even intellectualizing. If you find yourself always being busy intellectualizing and you can't just stop and just be with what, with what you're feeling. Now, that's something that we don't like. That's when we become aware of those feelings. And that's the vulnerability that we're gonna be discussing a little bit, that it's not easy to go there. Now, many people go to different substance, abuse, uh, substance that helps them to shut down the negatives. You see, we want, we want things to be perfect. We want things to work out. And no one should find out who, who I'm really, you know, behind the door, who, I'm, who, who it's real, who I, who I am. It's like putting on your jacket. You go into shul, put on your hat and jacket, and you pretend as if everything is good, no flaws. But the truth is, between me and you, or maybe it's only me, but we all have things we need to work on. And the truth is, you need a real healthy sense of self to be able to admit that I'm not perfect. And especially in today's days, before Shoshana, to admit that there are things that we still have to work on. And that's obviously after we can take in the positives that we have, to work, we have worked on and Baruch Hashem which we had a great year and uh, Hashem should help us weiter. But this takes, this takes us to that understanding of what are my emotions. Sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative. And many people choose to suppress them because of the negative emotions. But what we really have to learn is how to accept the negatives in order to be able to feel the positives also. So again, it doesn't mean you have to walk around and uh, being vulnerable wherever you go about the negatives and the things that you still have to work on. But step number one is at least to have the awareness, to know where I am and to understand that I still have room to grow 
and I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly okay, and I love myself the way I am now. And uh, that, that could be a lot of work. And tonight, Hashem, we will go a little bit deeper. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Akiva, for coming on and uh, giving us some of your time and helping us out. And Hashem should help. We should have a tailist from tonight's um, show, Emirates Hashem. Shkoyach. Thank, thank you, Coach Menachem. Beautiful opening. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Kiva Perlman for all those who know him are here already tonight. Um, Dr. Kiva Perlman is an international speaker on topics of abuse, addiction, and trauma. He has educated more than 250 of the firm social workers from our community and is currently serving as professor, as professor at Wurzlinger School of Social Work. Dr. Perlman, is a, Dr. Perlman is a clinical director of ODA's Wellness Institute, a clinic which serves the Chesedisha community in Williamsburg. He maintains a small practice in Fresh Meadows, Queens, where he resides with his wife, Tamara, and children. Um, I just want to say that I happen to be in a network of a lot of therapists since we started the show, and um, everybody said, wow, you're getting Dr. Perlman. Uh, the therapist actually asked me to get you on because a lot of them went, got trained under you or went to some of your lectures. So you came by uh, high demand and respect. And um, again, I'm just going to reiterate, tonight we're going to be discussing a little bit about trauma and about people's pain. Obviously, uh, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give it away, but uh, everybody obviously goes through trauma in life, and obviously everybody has pain. And we're not talking about how we got there. Dr. Cuba Perlman has dealt with, I don't know how many hundreds, if not thousands of people's cases, personal clients, and you know, being uh, mentors for therapists. So he's definitely seen it firsthand. But we're talking about the next level. Now that once we're there, which we all basically have a pickle, how to deal with it. Dr. Perlman, please open up. Floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real honor. And I just had the opportunity, first of all, to, uh, to see my father here. I didn't know uh, you were going to be here. And it's a, a tremendous honor to speak in front of you. Um, so thank you for, for joining. And, uh, and thank you again, Asher Menachem, for this opportunity. I think when you, you live with something, you live for something, and you spend an entire lifetime um, discussing an issue or working with an issue internally, having the opportunity to share it with people, um, even to have a collective experience in a, in a forum like this is very meaningful. Um, so I thank you for that opportunity. And, as, uh, and today, is a, it's a meaningful event for me as well, because I'm going to try something a little bit different, uh, something I haven't necessarily done, especially in a forum like this, uh, which is quite vulnerable. When you see the, uh, in the title itself, when it speaks about vulnerability, we're not just speaking about the vulnerability of trauma and what it's like to go through it, but I, I wanted to share a part of myself here as well, a part that I, I very often don't share in a public forum, um, just to join, to join my brothers and my sisters who are suffering, uh, to give a voice to them. And I think if there's anything um, that could come of this evening, it's about giving these individuals a voice, uh, people who don't necessarily have a platform to share their story with others. Um, for me, being so close to their, to their lives, to their suffering, um, and having an opportunity to speak for them, so to speak, is a real, is a real honor. Um, so it's not only for me, but it's also for the many, like you said, hundreds of people that, that I've been just blessed to, to be close enough to them to hear their story. And I want to share some of that with everybody here, because if we listen close enough, I think we'll start hearing our own voices. We'll start hearing the voices of, of our neighbors, of ourselves, um, that we should be listening to, especially in a time of year like this to listen to our own internal voice um, is, is a meaningful endeavor. 
So again, thank you. I want to share just a story um, that I encountered a couple of years ago. I think it would be very easy, and I'm going to try to share everything today, not so much from an academic point of view, but really from a personal perspective. I've worked with many people, read many books, and it would be very easy for me to share the story of trauma from an intellectual academic perspective. Um, but I find that most of you in this forum have already heard that. Um, and I think it's greater impact if it becomes a little bit more personal. Um, so I have a dear friend. I had a dear friend who I went to yeshiva with. Um, who, And I hope no one here ever has to experience something like this. But working in the field of addiction, I've many times have needed to attend a funeral. Um, but only twice was it of a good friend. Um, almost always was it was with people who I loved dearly and cared about dearly, but only twice was it someone that I actually interacted with as a, as a chaver, as a peer. Um, and I want to tell you one of those stories, it was a dear friend of mine I went to high school with that I got a tragic call one day. Um, and we had kept touch over the years, but I got that tragic call that he was no longer with us. And obviously it was connected to, to you know, some drug use, some other things like that. And and for those who've ever been to a, a graveside funeral, there's something about it that is shocking and sends chills through your body because either there's too much shame in the family um, to, to gather enough time to say, okay, let's get into a proper hall so we could speak about this individual. They're dealing with their own anger, their own rage of the loss of that individual. Um, and aside from that, often, you know, they discover a body uh, where they don't really have enough time to wait and prepare. Um, so they just need to do it as quickly as they possibly can. So this was one of these cold winter days uh, with snow on the ground. And we were called, it was just a collection of a few friends and family members um, standing by this funeral, this graveside funeral. And, um, and the stories that were shared about this young man were all beautiful. And everyone there loved this guy because he was just a generous, beautiful soul, even from when he was a kid. Just this beautiful young man. Um, and, and we spoke about his virtues and we spoke about his goodness and his kindness um, and everything about him that was unique. Um, but I remember on the way home calling my wife, and by the way, today is my, I didn't know this when we booked this show, but it happens to be my, 18, uh, and my 18th anniversary, um, so I'm, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> Usher's super excited that I'm here on my anniversary, but we're good. Um, we worked it out. Tomorrow night, we're going to celebrate instead. Um, but, uh, so I called my wife on the way home from this funeral and I shared with her what the experience was like and what it was like to, to be there in that space with, with his family, with my friends. Um, and I shared everything about it that, that touched me. But I said, there was one thing that about, about the story, there was one thing that was, that was missing where everyone spoke about how beautiful he was, but no one asked the question as to why. No one asked, how did this happen? Why did this happen to this young man? Because, and that's a general question that we ask anytime there's some form of tragedy, why? And I think the reason I was sharing with my wife at the time, the reason why we didn't ask why is because everyone who was there kind of knew. We all knew why, because we grew up with this kid. And we knew, we saw him struggle. We saw him struggle through a divorce in his family. We saw him struggle academically where he really had a hard time with learning. We saw him struggle socially. We saw him struggle with Yiddishkeit. We saw a young man who was clearly in some form of turmoil. So the question of why as to how does something like this happen, 
was not something that everyone in that room asked at all because we all kind of knew. We were all close enough to him to know the story. And to me, he sort of personifies the story of pain, the story of addiction, that most of us, when we look at it from the outside, all we see is the tragedy. We hear of a number. You know, I, I, many of you know I work with Amudim, and we hear, we hear numbers of, of the losses within our community and the losses within the world at large. Um, but we're not focusing on the stories. Who are these people? Where did they come from? What did they go through in their lives? And when we start paying attention to, to the trajectory of these individual lives, we'll begin to put together a story. We could start making sense of it. How is it that someone could start throwing away their lives or engaging in behavior that to them is deplorable or to them is dangerous and they feel it in that particular way? How is it possible that they continue to do something like that? Um, and, and that's what I want to do tonight, a little bit to go into that story, to give these individuals a voice, to give myself a voice, to give all of us a voice. Because the truth is when we talk about pain, we talk about suffering, I don't really know anyone who is excluded from that story. Everyone I know has something that they're carrying, something that they're holding on to, something that they're looking for some form of relief from, uh, because it, they're just burdened by it. Um, so tonight, I want to speak about that pain to offer some hope for those who are suffering and struggling on their own, and also to permit us to encounter our own sense of humanity, our own sense of struggle. And, and hopefully, if we could open up our eyes a little bit, we could create a, a safer world, a more comfortable world for those who are having a hard time to, to reach out, for them to know that there are people that care and are listening and are paying attention. Um, and the only way to do that is to sensitize ourselves to the suffering that the world has. Um, and like I said, I don't really want to go into this from an academic point of view. I want to speak about it from my own story, um, which is not something we typically do as therapists. We like to sort of keep our lives, you know, separate from the work. Um, but I think a moment like this calls for something a little more uh, than just an academic inquiry into pain and suffering. So I would ask, I have a need to qualify myself. And I even, if I see over here, it says Dr. Akiva Perlman. I don't think that was, you know, completely, you know, conscious, probably unconscious to say, hey, by the way, I'm going to say some things about myself that might be a little uncomfortable for me. But just remember, I'm a doctor. I tried my best. I'm trying to keep myself intact while I do this. But please be patient. Please be gentle. Um, as, I, as, I, as I share a part of myself, a part of my own story that brought me to where I am. Um, let's start with... Why I became a therapist, um, and I think I, re I remember I was actually the the class speaker um, at graduation for my master's program, and I gave a speech on altruism and what it means to be a therapist and what it means to dedicate your life to helping others. And at that point, you could tell based on the speech itself, the title of the speech, um, I was largely unaware of the deeper reasons why I became a therapist. I was primarily focusing on the result. And the result was I wanted to help people. I wanted to care for people. But I didn't pay enough attention as to what really sensitized me to people's pain. Um, there's a guy um, who I love. His name is Bugenthal, James Bugenthal. He's an existential psychologist. And in one of his books, a book called Intimate Encounters, in his introduction, he asked the question, he said, why would anyone who is sane, who is healthy and intact, ever choose to become a therapist? And his answer, his answer is, you can't be healthy and intact to become a therapist. There has to be something there that's compelling you um, to do this work. 
um, that is beyond altruism. That is beyond that. That and how are you sensitized to other people's stories altogether? Where did it come from? How did you become comfortable with the idea of spending your day, which I do day in and day out, listening to the stories of others, um, which I love and I appreciate and I embrace with everything I have. But why is it that that's something I'm drawn to? Where did that ultimately come from? Um, so we say altruism, um, but to me, the, 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 the more I looked into it, the more I paid attention to myself, the more I realized that it was a little more complicated than just altruism. Um, and people say therapists are messed up. And, and when we look at the research, it's actually true. Uh, most therapists are. Most therapists come from a place where there's some more, I appreciate Grace's, Grace's response to former students. She's a wonderful therapist. Um, but uh, there's therapists to some degree are, uh, but they also have very high rates of, of uh, capacity to handle it. Um, so a little bit about me and my story. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting sharing this in front of my father. It just could be some things will be new for you. Um, and we could speak about it later. Um, so as a kid, um, as a kid, I was really insecure, to say the least. Um, I walked around with a profound sense of insecurity. Uh, number one, when I was fairly young, my parents, my parents divorced, which was fairly new at the time. Uh, I had a profound struggle uh, academically. I really struggled with my own intellect. And it wasn't just a sense of like, you know, I'm not doing well in school, therefore I'm hurting. It was much more profound than that. It was a sense of, I'm incapable of learning things. I'm incapable of grasping information. Um, and when you walk around with that sense, um, then it, it, it has a real impact. It has, a, it has a real impact on the way you live in the world, the way you go about your day. Um, and as you'll see, as I share some of these stories, um, it really plays out. I remember when I graduated with my, with my doctorate, um, we had a whole party, and which was beautiful. My family put it together. And one of the things that I shared at the time was I had two options to deal with my insecurity. One was to go to therapy um, and work it through and figure out a way to start appreciating myself all over again. And the other one was to go on to my doctorate. And therefore, if, so long as you have doctor in front of your name, you're not supposed to be insecure and things are okay. Um, and at my graduation speech, I was sharing that now I have my doctorate and I still need to go to therapy. So it didn't exactly work. It didn't resolve the problem itself, but it was something um, that I was looking to cure. I was looking for, for a way to, to feel better about myself. Um, I was, as a kid, struggled with my weight. These are things that I sort of carried. Um, but there was a sense of sadness. There was a sense of, of longing that I had to either feel normal, to feel acceptable, to feel a part of the crew. And, and it was something that I, I, I grappled with and, and I, sought, I sought to acquire, um, but it was definitely hard coming. Um, but the only relief that I got from some of that struggle was when there was a sense of grandiosity, when there was a sense of being noticed in a good way, a sense of comfort, um, being seen as someone who is intelligent, being seen as someone who could contribute in a positive way. Um, that was something that ultimately gave me a sense of relief. Um, and you can imagine for someone who feels insecure, the things that you need to do, some of them positive, some of them negative, in order to achieve some of those, um, you know, some of that affirmation. Um, so if you're looking for something so desperately and you don't believe that you inherently have it, 
then you create a reality for yourself that's often filled with lies. It's filled with deception. Um, and that was a large part, a part of my story as a kid was whatever it would take, um, whatever I could say to others that would make me feel better, even though I knew myself that it wasn't correct, or I knew myself that it wasn't honest, um, was something I was craving and seeking and ultimately aspiring to, to, to obtain simply for myself. Um, so you can imagine those things that you need to do to obtain it if you don't inherently believe that you have it. Um, it's, yes, that question, how does one feel, who feels inadequate, survive a reality? Um, and, the, and, and the answer is that they lie, they numb, they steal, they cheat, they do whatever it takes to allow them to get by. And again, I know I'm sharing something very personal, but I'm also sharing a universal truth about people who don't feel good. People who don't feel good inherently are gonna look for things that they could do that would give them some sense of relief. And when we talk about a guy, this, this classmate of mine, who ultimately ended up hurting himself and ultimately ended up passing away as a result of it, um, we could only look at the, the end result but we need to ask ourselves the question that why was he doing this to himself? Why was he spending all that time uh, engaged in this, in this behavior that was harmful for him? And the answer is obvious to me, at least, is that he was looking for some form of comfort and he didn't know of any other way to get it. So he did whatever he knew at the time. And whatever he knew at that time was some form of drug, some form of lie, some form of deception in order to give him some degree of comfort that he was looking for. Now, I'm not sharing this because I'm proud. I'm not. I'd actually rather share something else. Um, but I want to tell that story. And when we talk about maladaptive behaviors and we talk about pain in any particular way, there's a foundation. There's an emotional source that we have to, to that story itself. I remember there, there's a guy, Gabor Mate, for those who are familiar, many of my students know that I love his work. It's nice to see you, David and David, um, two very special people who are here with us. Um, and Joseph, it's so nice to see you guys. Uh, but Gabor Mate made a statement about addiction and he said, you can never understand addiction without first asking the question of what, how is that behavior benefiting the person? In what way are they feeling something positive from that very negative behavior? And if you can't answer that question, if you can't figure out why a person feels needs something that is so inherently dangerous and needs something that they themselves find deplorable, yet they continue to do it. If you can't find the reason why they're doing it that's positive for them, then you're missing the boat. And very often, why it's positive for them is because they don't have anything else. There's nothing else that would give them that sense of comfort aside from the behavior that they happen to, to chance upon. I remember like my first client that I ever worked with, I was still, I was still at OHEL. Um, it was actually a funny story because I was working in the hospital and he escaped and he told me, and he, then he came to the clinic and he told me years later that it was, that I was the one who left the door open that he could escape. And he was looking around to see which therapist wasn't careful enough as they left the hospital. And turns out it was me. And then I ended up treating him a little while later. Um, a beautiful man, when I started seeing him, he was homeless. And Baruch Hashem, now he's, got, he's married, he's got a family, he's doing really well, but really addicted to some very, very intense behaviors and intense drugs. And at the time, I didn't understand it so much. And I was trying to understand, like, what's it like, what's it like when you use a drug like heroin? What does that actually feel like? I wanted to, like, get a sense. Give me the felt sense. And I asked him, like, what, what's, it, 
what's it all about? And my, my expected answer was that he would talk about how numbing it was, how comforting it was, how pleasurable it was. And his answer to this day stays with me where he says, like it was the first time in my life where I felt like I was being hugged, where I had some form of, of embrace from the world around me. And when you think about it, I remember asking people, if you ever go to a 12 step meeting, there's a lot of touch, there's a lot of physical contact, either at, right now we're, we're not doing it the same way, but we used to, there was a lot of hugging, there's a lot of handshaking, fist pumps, whatever it takes. And I asked one of the old timers there, like, what is it all about? And his answer to me was, we're making up for all the lost time, the absence of hugs in our life. Um, and it was a very similar answer, similar answer to this client of mine, where why is it, and this is a question we all need to reflect on, why is it that you have an individual who the only way that he could feel hugged is by doing something that could ultimately kill him? Where are we? And that's the question I ask myself all the time. Where are we? Where are we as a community? Where are we as a people? That in order for some people who are hurting so much and their hugs are absent for them in their lives, that the only way they know how to get it is by going to places that are ultimately harmful and they could hurt them. Um, but it gives us some insight that people who are seeking these hugs in the most profound ways are people who it's inherently missing. They don't have it in their lives. They don't have it as a part of them. And they're going to look for something else to give them that sense of comfort. I think the story that for me um, made me a therapist the most, like what groomed me the most to become a therapist. And, and it's a very shameful story, um, but it's also a true story. It's a story about uh, me and my life. Um, as a kid, like I was saying before, I felt really uncomfortable with my own abilities. Um, and by the way, just so you know, it's still something I struggle with. I've, I've come a long way with it, but the inherent belief um, that, that I have that ability is something that's, that's, that's harder for me at times. Um, I've, I, we're working through it, but it's still there. Uh, and that's one of the things we need to hold on to when it comes to any form of pain is that yes, we can make progress, we could grow and we can enhance ourselves, but just know that chances are it's going to be a part of your life. And until we find a way to convert it into some positive energy, um, it's going to stick with us. So I remember there was one particular type of test that I was most terrified of. And that was uh, like uh, Sharashim and Dikduk um, and, and memorizing terms and words. And it was something that no matter how hard I tried, and I didn't try too hard, but however hard I did try within the realm of, of what was available to me at the time, I seemed to fail over and over again. I couldn't pass a test. Um, and in second or third grade, I believe, it was, I believe it was second grade, but it's possible that it's third. We had, um, we had a test on, on Shorish words. Um, and every morning when there was a test like that, I would try to play sick or I try to find some way to avoid it. Um, but I decided to go that day and unfortunately nothing I'm proud of, but I, but I cheated on that test as a, as a second grader. Um, and I took out the piece of paper with the answer sheet on it. And I, and I used that to, to, to guide myself. And obviously I was caught. Um, otherwise I wouldn't be sharing this story. Um, I was caught and I, and I happened to be walking down the hallway when I overheard, this is a, a crazy story. I overheard one Rebbe speaking to another about the incident, about the fact that I had cheated on a test and he had just caught me. Um, and one said to the other, he said, simply ignore it. 
it's uh, it's a nebuch. What are you going to do? Like he come, he's 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 struggling. He's having a hard time. There's nothing you could do about it. And I remember the feeling as a kid. Even now, I get uncomfortable thinking about it. I remember the feeling as a little kid, um, and feeling that deep sense of pain that there was no future. That was the sense I was left with. That here there is like it's it's a done deal. It's a final story. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. That nothing good is going to come of this story. And I remember it, it might have been the healthiest, and it might have been the the least healthy decision of my life, consciously or unconscious. Uh, but I made a decision at that point in my life to say, I'm going to make sure the outside looks good. I'm going to make sure that the way I present myself to the world, I'm not going to give anyone an opportunity to say. I'm not going to give anyone an opportunity to say it's a sad story. And I literally at that point, I moved on from that wounded child. I really did. I just left it there and said, I'm going to become somebody that at least the outside world is going to see me in a positive light. And that became my journey from that point on where whatever it would take, however destructive it might have been to, to sort of mask over that wound of the way I really felt about myself is, is th that's, that's how it started. And that's the way it stayed for a very long time. Um, and over time, over time, forsaking that person who was really hurting, that person who couldn't really care for himself at that point in his life, really took a toll. So the outside was wonderful, the outside was good. I was seeking affirmation, I was seeking positivity. Uh, but on the inside, I didn't feel that good. And that was the day that I stopped listening to what we would call the inner child. Um, it didn't matter so much how I felt. It mattered how I presented myself, how the world saw me. Um, and if that meant lying, that's what it, that's what it took. If that meant uh, doing something else to achieve something, I would do the same as well. Um, and I just now I'm working with a young man who is trying to share his story. He has a long history of being abused um, by, by an older bracher in his yeshiva. And he was trying to share his story with his wife. Um, and the only thing, he's a married man with children now, Kanayin Hara, they're beautiful, beautiful people, a beautiful marriage. But he's so stuck on this idea of like, I can't share the shame of my life because if I do, I'm going to be rejected. So I'd rather present myself as a person that is acceptable to everybody else than to really be wholesomely me in, in whatever context that, that might look like. And it's the same conclusion. The same conclusion of people I sit with day in and day out, where they fracture their lives, they present themselves to the world in one way, yet live a completely different way. And it's a way that is filled with pain. It's a way, it's a life that is filled with shame and suffering. Um, and and that's, that's a little bit of my story. It's a little bit of their story. And I do believe it's a little bit of our story. Um, the, the idea of, for me, the journey became one of survival, pretend and lies, self-sacrifice, being okay to others, and ultimately was my training. This was the greatest training I ever had to become a therapist. Because when you think about what it means to be a therapist, what it means to be in a place where you're listening to others, your primary objective is to hone in on the feelings of the people around you. Um, and that's what Bugenthal is saying I just want to read for a second from a, a wonderful writer, Alice Miller, um, who there's been some controversy as of late um, about her work. But 
she, she asks that question of how does one become so good at listening to others? And her answer, very simply put, is they become good at listening to others because they stop listening to themselves. And their primary focus becomes about seeing the world around them, satisfying, gratifying the world around them, as opposed to paying attention to how they actually feel. Um, and to be free, to be free um, without, without this need to fracture oneself is the objective. That's the goal, to get to a place where one doesn't need to sacrifice their own lives in order to feel connected to other people. Um, that's what we're striving for. Um, and again, I know we have, we'll have some questions, but I did want to speak, just start. I wanted to start not so much with a, a, an intellectual discourse on what pain and suffering is like, but, but universally to connect and to listen to our own stories. Um, because we all share some degree of this story, a part of ourselves that is that feels shame, that feels discomfort, that's a bit fractured. And for us to know that here we are, we have 420 people here listening in on, on what it's like to pay attention to our inner selves and pay attention to other people who are having that hard time and create a world and create relationships by which we could tolerate the existence of another person's pain, as opposed to saying, I need you to be a certain way because at least that's, that's what makes me feel comfortable. That's what makes me feel okay. Um, and my only hope, aside from myself, for all of us, but from this young man that I'm working with now, for him to find a way to get beyond his own shame and his own sense of rejection so that he could share his true self with his spouse who's loving and caring and kind and thoughtful um, and to bring that energy into that marriage so he could begin healing and they could begin healing together. Um, so that's my bracha to everybody here. And I know we're going to open it up. Uh, it's such a real beautiful forum. Uh, to be in, and I hope uh, we got through that. Now um, we could be a doctor again, which is good. Um, I'll switch. I'll switch the name back to doctor. Now, you, now you're good. Now you're doctor. Now we're doctor. <laughs> Dr. Perlman, that was the most vulnerable speech ever. I mean, you took "Let's Get Real" to a whole new level. How much I can tell you. I'm getting texts because I, I see what's going on, and people are like all over the place. So let's try. Let's take a one-minute break with a little poll. Get a little feeling okay. from the crowd. Um, right. I have a few live questions, but I want to get to one question. Actually, want to get the few, but one specifically to start with. Um, so let's take a poll. Everybody, it's an anonymous poll, just to give uh, just to give a feeling to the crowd. It's two question poll. Do you feel there's something inside of you that's holding you back from being successful in your life? Four choices: yes, and I am aware of it. Option B: yes, but I don't know what it is. Option C: I'm not sure. Option D: I think I am successful in life. Nothing is holding me back. You're a complete success. That's the first question. Everybody, please answer. You know, it's uh, anonymous. I don't know who's saying what. By the way, Dr. Perlman, you're the only one who can see the results until we share it. So you see what's going on. Yeah, these are so fascinating results. Fascinating. Question oh, number two. Bottom line, what are you doing about it? I see a therapist, coach, or rabbi. I'm still trying to figure it out. Or C, I just go on basically giving up. Everybody vote. Let's go. Let's go. Keep going. Perlman, interesting, no? Yeah. It's really sad to see that I'm just going on. A lot of people. They need some ideas. <laughs> That's why they're here tonight. It's not sad. That's why they're here. Yes. Okay, three seconds, two. Come on, guys. Last chance. Okay, here we go. I'm going to end the result. I'm going to share with everybody. Okay. Do you feel there's something inside of you that's holding you back from being successful in your life? A whopping 53%, Dr. Brown, will feel, yes, there's something, and they're aware of it. Most people are conscious. And they're being vulnerable and being honest and saying that there is, which is impressive. 
Yes, but I don't know what it is, 29%. 11%, I'm not sure. 7%, I think I'm successful in life. Nothing's holding me back. Not a lot of guy was on this program, I see, obviously. Question two, what are you doing about it? 36% are saying, I see a therapist, coach, rabbi. The winner, whopping 43%, I'm still trying to figure it out. And 21%, I'm just basically gave up. That's a sad result. <laughs> Okay. No, but you could tell, one thing you could tell about this program mm -hmm. is that you're definitely attracting a very self-aware group, people who are well, interested. Well, we're, we're trying, I'm saying me and me, me, Menachem, we're trying to really bring people to a forum and really have an open discussion, things that we, like the things you discussed tonight, basically everybody can relate to. I, I don't think anybody's shocked. Maybe people are shocked that you actually have the guts to say it and being vulnerable, but what you're saying is not really a chiddush because everybody, if they really are truthful with themselves, they will have things to deal with and they have to come to terms with it. So I think that's that's really the goal of the program. And we have a very growing crowd. I mean, obviously you have 440 people on a Sunday night, they could be uh, watching or, uh, you know, going to a movie theater. I mean, maybe it's COVID, you know what I mean? They could be doing Netflix instead of Burnflix, but they're here tonight. So let's start with that. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. We really want to get things going. And again, it's a vulnerable program. I would like anybody who wants to ask live, please ask live, text me on, on the program. I'm here, Asher Barnes. text me on the thing. Let's try to get live questions in. We're trying to try to really cover as much ground as possible. And let's go. You ready? First question. Why does everybody keep on pointing to the appearance as the source of all the problems? Rabbi Perlman, your father, I'm just, this is for you. Why does everybody keep on pointing to the appearance as a source for all the problems? I always say this joke. I tell my kids, I'm, I buy you everything. I spend 90% of my money goes to my kid, the seminary, the tuition, everything. And after everything, and I take them, I pick them up, I drive them and everything. I said, but in a few years, I'll be sitting by a therapist said, my father messed my whole life up. Okay, go. <laughs> the, uh, it's a beautiful question. Um, I think we have to get a little bit, I don't want to go too deep into psychology as to why, obviously, this question really goes back to Freud. But I want to share an idea that was uh, shared to me by actually a student. He, he gave me the text uh, from the middle of Rebbe, who was, uh, I believe, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, who shared a concept about, and, and this does speak about kids going off the derech and, and why and where is that coming from. Obviously, it's a very controversial subject matter. Um, we're certainly not going to attempt to answer that now. But the idea, the idea that he shared, he said that in the Aser Sodibros that we have, we have Benadam Lemakom, which is the first, the first tablet, and Benadam Lechavero. And he said, except for the bottom one, the bottom uh, of the, ten, of the 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 number five that we have, which is in the Ben Adam Lemakom, is respecting, honoring your parents. And he asked the question, he said, that's Ben Adam Lechavero. It's a connection between us and another person. Why is that in the category of Ben Adam Lemakom? And the middle Rebbe said, like, just a beautiful concept, where he said that the relationship we have with Hashem, the relationship we have with Hashem in general, the only metaphor that we have in this world, for that relationship of an, of an all-knowing, loving, embracing um, character is that of our parents. They are the characters that are closest to that of our relationship with Hashem. So when we talk about that being first primary to who we are as people and having the, the greatest effect on our development, we're really speaking to a, a power that is as close as we can get to what it means to have this, this unconditional love that Hashem has for his children. Um, and I think we may take it a little bit for granted. It's not just a function, being a parent, of providing like what Abraham Maslow would say of a roof and, and food and shelter and all those things, but rather a parent is one that nurtures the soul of every person. 
they're the ones that give you that foundation, that sense of I'm good enough, I'm lovable enough. Um, if you look at the works of, of the attachment theorists of Harry Harlow, Mary Ainsworth, and that whole chevra, they speak about the experience of, of what's it like for a child to be looked at by a parent. Um, and he said there are two different ways to look at it, to look at a child from a parent's point of view. You either look into the soul of that child and they feel it. The child somehow intuitively feels that I'm loved, I'm thought of, I'm cared for, I'm appreciated, I'm valued. And they could take that sense with them into the world. And then you have those children that when their parents look at them, they're really looking at themselves, that this child is a reflection of me. So the child serves as a mirror. And that child intuitively feels that as well. They feel that sense that they're a pawn in this parent's life, unconsciously, some degree of a pawn. Um, and they need to be something in order to uphold the standard and the status of their parents. And if we can imagine for a second what that actually feels like as it's internalized, um, it's not a sense of worth, it's not a sense of belonging, but rather it's a sense of I'm here to satisfy somebody else. And I hope that I could fulfill that task I hope I could be someone who could, you know, personify my parents in the best light possible. Um, but that's one that's deeply painful. Um, and it's, it's something my wife is also, she's a psychologist. Um, and we often ask ourselves that question, like, what are we doing today? That in five years from now, we're going to wonder, like, how did we ever do that? How do we ever raise our, how do we ever make that choice? And to me, it's just a vulnerable, natural question every parent needs to ask themselves. Like, what are we doing to really be present for our kids? Um, and I saw some of the programs before, some beautiful advice being offered, like simply being there, focusing on them, using them as people that, not using them in any way, but seeing them as individuals that we're actually appreciating as autonomous figures outside of us, that loving and appreciating who they are, as opposed to only seeing them as a reflection of ourselves. And that relationship shapes and builds the foundation of every person. I mean, yes, there are other people who contribute to it as well, but it becomes, to answer the question, it's the most critical relationship that we have, you know, outside of our relationship with Hashem. It is the one that's most symbolic of that love, of that, that belonging, of that sense of self and dignity that comes from, from up above. I hope that answers the question a little bit. Okay. So first of all, I would like to thank you for uh, giving over that, that opening i think uh, a lot of people were able to um just by listening and i th i know a lot of people are have a hard time just being vulnerable but and many people are asking and uh, that's not going to be the question now but what uh, what positive would come out of being bringing up all those all those things but the question now is what happens to those people who um they live with the pain but they're not aware of it. Basically, I guess there are two types. There are those who know they're in pain, but then there are others that they're not really aware that it's pain going right. on. Well, they may not have the language that it's pain, but there's no question that there's, there's a Freudian concept called psychic determinism. And the concept is basically that one that you've, if, if you've experienced something that's been painful in your life, it's going to play out one way or another. And therapists and coaches as well, we all have one analogy or another that we use, either a boiling pot, where eventually, you know, you have enough pressure in that pot with that's got a cover on it, it's going to implode, it's going to blow up. 
Um, so you may not be aware of that pain, but the truth is, in my experience, most people are. It's rare to me that people aren't necessarily aware of that pain. They know they may not be able to, to confront it, to address it, but it's going to manifest. So if you don't feel it, the people around you, your loved ones will feel it. Um, it's, going to, it's going to emerge and chaos will ensue one way or another. If you're not centered, if you don't feel whole, if you don't feel connected, and you don't feel like a healthy human being, one way or another, that pain is gonna manifest itself in the world. Um, and as a result of that, chaos, chaos will come about. Um, and so sometimes, very often, especially in my line of work, uh, most people are sent to, sent to me, as opposed to going on their own. It's shifted more recently in the past few years, when many of the people that I'm working with are actually therapists. They're not you know, people being sent by a spouse. But as we all know this, that, that therapists, are filled with individuals who are simply sent by a principal, by a parent, by a spouse, uh, because they themselves are not yet willing or aware enough to know that there's something that's going on. Um, and then slowly in this room, that's where it begins to take, take, take form, take shape. It's interesting, uh, you're talking from a therapist's point of view, which um, obviously there's real pain by the time they come to you. But from a coach's point of view, I. I can speak to people who want to enhance just in their business or um, any area in life. And it's just going into why am I doing what I'm doing? Why wouldn't you try this or try that? And they would just say, that's not for me. And, uh, and I don't want to go there. Right. So it's not real pain because like we saw on the, on the poll that they, they, they tell themselves, this is my life. And uh, I guess this is it, even though I might not be happy about it, but who said you have to be happy? Or <laughs> what they tell themselves, listen, this is what Hashem wants from me. But really what's going on deep down is something what shaped um, their reality, shaped the way they look at themselves, which tell, tell themselves that this is where I am, but it doesn't have to be true. So I think over there it's more, the pain is more suppressed, and right. not that much aware of. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I, I, a wonderful man I worked with, a very successful businessman. Um, and, and he was struggling. His business was beginning to unravel over time. Um, and when we started looking at why did he create this business in the first place, and we spent time with that question, what was it all about? And he, he ultimately created a business that he could support his whole family with, that he could bring his parents into the fold and his siblings and his children. Um, and it, it ultimately was, was, it came down to the fact that he, he needed his self-worth was, was developed out of taking care of everybody else, that he felt that that was his mandate. And going into therapy or going into his own exploration of himself, he was never really aware of that um, as, as a primary motivating force. But the moment he sat with the question, the more he was able to, to realize that that was the true story of his life. And like you said, sometimes it takes a little bit of digging. Um, but generally speaking, those people have others in their lives who know this about them. They already know that there's a problem. But they're, sometimes they're the, you know, the last one to the party. I can speak about myself that I, I didn't necessarily see myself as an individual struggling um, or having a hard time or dealing with these these, these real insecurities. Um, but I, I, I spent time with it and was comfortable enough acknowledging that. And then ultimately it was okay. It's okay to sit with that. You know, it's okay to share it with everybody here as well. 
Roman, there's a, a thing that I don't know if you knew before you signed up, but when you sign up, you get, when you, next time there's a share, if you want to ask a question, you get to go first. You get Kadima. You know that? I did not know. So we have somebody that gave a share that wants to ask a question. Vivaldi. He goes first. You ready? Yes. He says he wants to be vulnerable. <laughs> Rabbi Shay's tab wants to ask you a question. Wow. What an honor. Rabbi Tab, unmute yourself. Hi there. How are you? Baruch Hashem. Wow. This oh. is this is what a, an amazing program. I really got a lot from your your sharing and you're telling your story and really, really tremendous chizuk. Tremendous chizuk. So I can tell you for sure it helped somebody because it helped me. So thank you. Um, I want to I wanna take advantage of an opportunity to ask a question because people always ask me questions. So I want to be able to ask the question, which is actually this is also what my question's about. The question is, you know, there, there's, there's something that they call compassion fatigue, where you just, you hear so many problems and so many, so much sort of, and, um, you know, you mentioned something when, at the beginning about how, you know, anyone who has a certain sensitivity to help people, it comes from a place of pain, right? So it's like those who are able to feel others pain is you know because they they have their own pain right and yes. right i mean and 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 to me I, I look i'm not this is this is your share not mine so this is my 10 second version of it is we're all in pain because if you're in a shama that came down to this world that's enough pain already right yeah. you know, they, <laughs> right if you're aware enough of that said. <laughs> uh, right enough said exactly like we're all in pain okay so here's here's a simple question there's enough pain, unfortunately, already just being in the Shama in this world and being in Gullus and whatever the challenges are. My, my question to you is, what, I mean, you, you told me that you love spending your day listening to people's stories. So obviously you're doing something right. Obviously you're doing, you're doing something right. I would like to hear some guidance for me and for anyone else who this is helpful to. What do you do? Maybe it's about having the right boundaries. Maybe it's about, I don't know. I don't want to put, I don't want to put the words in your mouth, but can you speak to the, just the, the being overwhelmed with hearing pain and just not wanting to hear anymore and just wanting to just don't talk to me. Don't, don't, don't ask me anything. And just what do you do? Cause obviously the response isn't just to shut out the world, but I'm wondering, I would love some, some insight on this. It's, yeah. So I, I wish I could give you an idealized answer to this question. Like I figured this out and I've resolved this dilemma and, and it, I'm never encumbered by, by the pain of the people that I work with. And the reality is there are many different points of view. And if you go to school for, to become a psychologist or any form of therapist, you're almost always going to hear, don't take it home and don't take the work home with you. And one of the things that I encourage myself and my students is look at this realistically. You will take it home. Of course you'll take it home because if someone's sharing their life with you and it doesn't matter enough for you to take it home, then you're not really listening and you're not really joining that person in their struggle. Um, so obviously there are times to be very honest where you feel beat down by the work, where it penetrates or it hits a part of you that is too raw and it's too open and too vulnerable 
um, and you really can't sleep. And I've spent plenty of nights not sleeping because of internalizing the pain of the people that I work with. Um, I do think I could go into, you know, my, my milk carton, my milk crate answer, which is there are things you need to do to take care of yourself. There are things that I do that, that restore my sense of being, um, being on a mountain, flying down that mountain as fast as I can on my snowboard, um, gives me a sense of, of being alive, um, being outdoors in nature gives me like a, it reconnects me to myself and to Hashem in a way that is, that is grounding. Um, but the truth is it's a journey. It's not a journey that you discover an answer and then you run with it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to say, I, I wouldn't want to see a therapist who is not thinking about me and, and my life and what I've shared with them during that time that we spent together. I want to see someone that when I share my life with them, it matters enough for them to take it home and it's going to hurt. So there's a fine balance to me. It's not a great answer, but there's a fine balance between nurturing yourself in ways that you know how to restore your own being, um, but also caring enough that it, that it stays with you. And not everyone is cut out for this work. Um, and not everyone is cut out for the very intense type of work. And we need to know that about ourselves. Um, there were some, some industries that I was in um, where I left because I wasn't cut out for it. It was the, the work itself was too challenging. When I was working with offenders, sexual offenders, um, which I spent, spent some time doing, it just wasn't for me. I couldn't contain it. I, I was too beaten down by that work. Um, but working with people who are victims of sexual abuse, it, it doesn't feel the same to me. Um, or addicts or other people struggling and knowing yourself well. Um, but also having, like we, we know, we know this idea that you have, to have, you have to have enough in your own cup in order to give to others. You have to nurture yourself enough and be in, in your own you know, meaningful relationships that could contain it, um, that could make you feel like, that could restore you to your own sense of sanity, to play ball with our children, to spend time with our loved ones, um, these are things that all restore us to a sense of being and self um, that, that, that's healthy. But I wish I could say there was a formula that would, that would make all of this okay. It's not. This is this, this line of work, and it's not, it's not just therapists. Um, it's anyone who's listening and paying attention to the world around them. They're inevitably going to be encumbered by some of the suffering that exists. Um, and we need to find a way to be there. And I think it's an honor to be there. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world to spend that time that I have with the, with the dear people that I work with who are suffering, um, even though there are times when it knocks me on my feet. And, and that's just the way it is. And, and, and I'm, willing, I'm willing to take that hit because it's that meaningful to me. And it feels, it feels like the most special place to be. Um, but, but I don't think it answers your question. It certainly doesn't answer the question as eloquently as you answer the questions that are posed to you, um, which, I, which I thoroughly enjoy every week reading them. Um, but it's, uh, it's my own answer. It's, 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 it's a struggle. As Winnicott says, you just want to be a good enough parent. And I would say we could apply that same idea. You want to be a good enough human being and therapist that you could hold on to what, what's given to you. Um, and not have it destroy you, all the while knowing that there will be times that it's going to knock you out a little bit. I just want to let you know um, the amount of text I'm getting, and like people are like totally blown away by the program. One wife, one person texted me that his wife is literally listening to your opening, and she was crying. Just letting you know. So you're definitely hitting some buttons here. Um, a lot of the questions are coming in. They're coming in very strong over here. But 
I asked my wife who's sitting next to me to recap some of the questions and put them into bulk. And it's one general question that's coming in, and I know it's a it's a more of a holistic question, but I don't know if you can give any tips. Is it possible to heal real child trauma? If yes, what methods have you seen effective in your many years of being a therapist? Right. It's interesting. It's a great question, especially for these times. For those who are close enough to the therapy profession at this point, um, it's, it's a very interesting state. Uh, just to give an example, 15 years ago, we didn't have as nuanced the practices that we have today in the world of therapy. Um, all the techniques were there, but people were generally generalist practitioners. There were people who would work with parents and with trauma, um, but now it's becoming very, very specific that, you know, I work with trauma, this specific type of trauma, and that's it. That's all I do. Um, and I've, I'm doing my best to avoid, um, to avoid that altogether um, and just become a person who wants to be with people in a way that's meaningful for them on their journey. Um, but to answer the question, when we say getting rid of childhood trauma, um, I think that there's, there's shame inherent in that question. The idea of I want to absolve myself of my story. Um, and I think to me, uh, just to change the question a little bit, is how do I learn to meaningfully live with my trauma? To me is a better way of looking at that question, a better way of looking at that idea. Um, our, our stories mean something. Whatever we've been through in our lives grants us access to the world at large, uh, to the people around us who may have, had, may have had something similar. It sensitizes us to what's happening around us. And I'm not sure we want to absolve ourselves of that. Yes, we don't want to suffer and we don't want to live in a way that we feel like we can't wake up in the morning. But what if we could learn to live with the struggles that we've been through um, and, and attribute some meaning to it? and find a way to make it a part of our identity as opposed to attempting to erase it. Um, for example, I'll just go back to this one, one young man I'm working with where his intent was always, I wanna simply move on from the experiences that I've been through. I wanna live as if they never existed. And, and he was in therapy that was attempting to do that. And there are some forms of therapy for those who are familiar. You have somatic experiencing, which his intention is to really absolve a person of the suffering. And you have EMDR, which is tensions are exactly the same. Um, but to me, our suffering is a part of who we are. It's a part of our story. Um, and I'm not sure what else we would lose um, by getting rid of the suffering. I don't know what else we would, what, what other joys we would also be giving up on at the same time. Um, and we need to know that they work that same way. When you cut off a certain element of your life, you cut off one extreme, you're also cutting off another extreme. So to me, the objective becomes learning to live with the pain, learning to possibly even journey with it and love it and care for it and tend to it, um, but not try to erase it. Erasing pain to me is, um, is a form of shame. It's a shame of what we've been through. And your, your pain, whatever you've been through in your life, it was there for a reason. And we just need to figure out what that reason is. Um, a lot of why I became a therapist was, was about painful experiences. But today, it's not about that. Today, it's the joy and the honor of sitting with another person who's having a hard time. And I'm not sitting there paying attention to the developmental factors that brought me into this space. I'm paying attention to the honor that I have while not forsaking those developmental factors. They're still a part of me, and I could still hold on to them, but they're not dominating my life the way they used to. 
Um, and to me, I choose to, to find the meaning in pain as opposed to trying to absolve myself of it. Um, and, but obviously, we need to find a way to live with it. Um, and and for, for a person who's in pain, to them, all they want is some form of resolution to it. Um, but first, they need that resolution. And then you could dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, how do we... How do we find a way to make sense of this? How do we find a way to live with it that's purposeful and that has some sense of meaning? But it's a profound and a beautiful question, one that I, I grapple with on a daily basis and one that virtually everyone I've ever worked with asks. Like, how do I move on from it? the topic of our, of our share tonight also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said before, anybody who's been on before gets a little Kadima before everybody else. So I'm going to put on a past therapist that was on, I think he was one of your students actually, he wants to say something, Menachem Friedman. Menachem. Menachem wow. Friedman. Wow, how are you my brother? Kiri, what's going on? Uh, okay, I just want 30 seconds and I'm not asking a question, I just need to say something, okay? Because I'm sure there's hundreds of people sitting out there now saying, is this man for real? And the answer is, I've known Kiri now for what, 14 years I think? Something like um, that. Something like that, Kiri was my supervisor for many years and my professor in, um, uh, in graduate school. And what you see is what you get. And what you're listening to is exactly what this man is. So take it, enjoy it, and cherish it, because you're not going to get this again. <laughs> That's all. Thank you. Thank you, Menachem. You're too kind. By the Take way, care, buddy. I'm not going to say anything, but I want to let you know my network of therapists, they all said the same thing. So, not there's no, nothing like, nothing like, I mean, I'm looking at the screen and I see the, the people I've had the opportunity to journey with, David and Yosef and Joseph, I mean, this and Grace and, and Ari, who I know. I mean, this is just David. And I, I mean, this is just a beautiful room to be a part of. Um, and these people have affected my life in, in the most meaningful way you could imagine. You know, I, I, fellow I travelers. Some of you remember that um, that speech. Our fellow travelers. Okay, I would like to take it a little bit um, to something practical. Like you shared your story and the story of um, the person that you're working with. But the question is, how do we deal with the with the negative emotions? So I would want to take it to your story or to the story of. Um, this person sharing with his spouse, which is a discussion for itself, because not everyone feels comfortable, depending on the relationship uh, of the spouse. But before that, how would you um, deal with it in a healthy way? Like you mentioned when you made a decision when you were young, or this person can't share his story. What, how, would you, how should a person deal with those negative emotions in a, in a, in a positive way? Right. Well, well, first of all, secrets are toxic. Secrets from ourselves, secrets from the ones that we love most are toxic, simply, simply put. Um, and the journey begins by acknowledging that there's something going on. The journey begins that, I mean, I work a lot with people who literally live two different lives. They have the life that they present to the world and then the life that they that they live with on their own, that's filled with secrecy and shame and, and just sheer suffering. There's nothing every single day. I mean, imagine I, there's one man I work with um, where I asked him, we actually did a session in this office. You see the mirror behind me. We did a session a few weeks ago where all we did was look in the mirror. 
uh, and, and just speak about what it's like to see his reflection and what comes up. And the reason why we did that is because he shared with me just in passing as he was walking out of my office that he hasn't looked himself in the face in over five years. And when I hear a statement like that, I haven't looked myself in the face. It means, yes, there's the physical, you know, practical element of that where he hasn't actually looked in the mirror. Um, but much more profound than that is that he's afraid to see himself. Um, and step number one is, is taking that very deep, hard look at who we actually are. Um, Carl Rogers, who is one of my, one of my teachers in this profession, um, a beautiful, beautiful psychologist, um, he spoke about the dysfunction lies between the distance between what we'd like to be, what we'd like to become as a person, and what we actually are. And the farther those two elements are from one another, the more pain we're in. So step number one is bringing our worlds together to a place where we're no longer living a double life. We're no longer creating this fractured being. And we're integrating it in a way where we could be whole in one place. And sometimes it's only one environment where you could do this with the, with the intent of extending it to other places as well. So the beginning of that journey, you can't heal so long as you're maintaining the facade that you've been living with for, for a long time. It starts with a moment like this, where maybe someone has the courage to say, you should know that, that yes, you see a certain part of me, but there are other parts to me as well. Um, and finding relationships that could tolerate that, that are safe enough to, to internalize such a statement. Um, that's the beginning of, of a healing journey um, where we stop, we stop running from ourselves and we literally and figuratively choose to look ourselves in the mirror and see what, what reflects back at us and be okay with it. Because at the end of the day, I don't know anyone who isn't trying their best. Even the people who are making the biggest mistakes, they're also trying their best. Um, so all we could do is acknowledge that we're, we're having a hard time and this is our struggle and that's the beginning of that journey and then we move on. We move on. We begin to heal. But it, it can be very hard. Yes. How, do they, how do they start? You tell the guy to look in the mirror. He hasn't done it in five years. Well, how, how I, does I, he start? I do not believe that there were more than 10 or 15 words spoken in that hour. There were no words to put to that experience. It was just tears and ruminating and, and re-experiencing lost time. Um, but at the end, at the end, he was able to say, I looked at myself today. And that was probably the first time in many years. I had a guy reach out to me recently. You know, it's hard to say you have like a client that's your favorite. And we're not allowed to say things like that. But this man, he still lives with me. I haven't worked with him in years. He's just such an inspiring human being that it's, uh, he took me on a journey much more than I took him on a journey. And he had shared with me, he was this older Hasidish man who struggled in ways that, that were just profound for years on end. And he gave me a call a little while ago saying, you know, I've made simchas in my, for my family before, but this is the first simcha that I'm really at. And this is a man who has Kanainahara, a very large family, and he's been to many weddings. He's made many weddings. Um, but that was the first one where he was really at. Uh, and what that means to me is that he brought all of himself into that space. He had, there were no fractured parts that were left outside of that simcha. Um, and that's what it means to be whole. And that's what this guy, at the end of the day, he could say, I, I chose to see myself. Um, and yes, I don't have words to, to explain what that was like for me, but I'll find them one day. Um, and, and it'll take a little bit of time, but I'll find them. We'll get there.
Okay, this goes into the next question where I'm getting a lot of similar. Again, I'm going to ask the question, but let's try to let's try to pull the question into many parts. You ready? What I went through has made me so incapable and stuck in my life from embarrassment and anger. I feel locked up in jail, even though on the outside I look like a regular yid. What could I do to get out of this? And that could be, you know, you could already put in the missing parts what that could be. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe we heal. I think there are many ways to heal. But generally speaking, we don't heal alone. Um, and that doesn't mean it's not an advertisement. For those who know me, I don't hang up a plaque saying everyone needs to be in therapy. Therapy is a tool like any other tool. You have coaches, you have Tehillim, you have loving relationships, you have parents, you have spouses. Um, you have lots of people in the world that we could connect with. But that journey doesn't begin alone, and it can't begin alone. There needs to be someone. And even if that means reaching out to, to Hashem in, 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 in all earnestness and sincerity, but it means reaching out to an entity, to another human being. Because what, what ends up sustaining that pain that you're describing, which is something that I think many of us are familiar with, that alienation of self and that estrangement of self, um, what, what sustains it is the secrecy, is the aloneness of it all. And finding someone somehow who has that ability to, to see us as a human being in spite of the fact that we've had things that we struggle with, um, that's, that's where the journey begins ultimately. So I'd say find someone. It's, it could be a Rebbe, it could be a spouse, it could be a friend, um, it could be a therapist or a coach, um, but find someone that you could journey with you know, through these very challenging times. Because it breaks the cycle. It breaks the cycle of secrecy and shame. And there's no way to heal so long as that's sustained. There's a saying, the less you talk about it, the more you have it. <laughs> Correct. Okay, the question is, I know many people have asked this. Um, I've gotten this question many times. Why should somebody open a can of worms? Um, he's gone through his whole lifetime. Many things have have happened. He's managed to go on and he's, you know, basically, you know, overall he's doing good. Is there any reason why he should look back and start um, figuring out what I do want, what I don't want? Maybe it has affected his life. Well, maybe if, leave it the way it I is. really believed, and if we believed that there's a way to go through your life without it really affecting you, then so be it. You know, ignorance is bliss is a wonderful statement, and I truly believe it. The problem is we apply that concept to many people who aren't ignorant. Um, we apply that concept to people who, are, who really are aware of what's happening, but they choose to move on. Um, they choose to move on with their lives anyway. Um, and, and I could share some many, many beautiful stories um, of, of people who would basically walk into the room or they were dragged there by a child or for whatever reason they made their way into therapy. And, and who wants to live a good enough life? You know, who wants to say at the end that this was good, I did okay. Uh, we, wanna, we wanna embrace it. We wanna live wholesomely. We wanna live in a way that we're, we feel alive and we feel comfortable in our skin. And yes, it's possible to survive, but who wants to just survive and not really live? Um, and there's a way to live. It's not like we need to live in that. There are plenty of people who are willing to look at you and accept you for who you are, even though you've struggled a great deal, even though you've made many mistakes in your life. Um, and who's will, why should we settle for good enough when we know we could have something a lot greater than that? 
Um, and I, I know for myself, I wouldn't want to do that. And I don't think anyone here would either. Yeah. I'm going to again take a bunch of questions and try to condense it into one question. Yeah. I'm getting probably about 15, 20 different versions, but it all basically comes down to this. If someone has a long-term addiction, can it really be cured? Oh, for sure. Not a question. Um, you know, there's lots of terminology that we use for addiction. Addiction is a mechanism that we use to survive a very challenging life. Um, it's the only thing we discovered early on. If anyone here goes to a meeting, one of the statements that you're going to hear as people qualify, they tell their story. Um, so you have a speaker, for those who have seen it either in person or have seen it in the movies, you have a guy who gets up and says, hey, I'm Kiwi and I'm an addict. And everyone says, hey, Kiwi, how are you? And they qualify, they tell their story. And what does it mean by telling their story? They all start, and they almost sound identical to one another, um, where they say that at, I didn't feel quite right. As a child, there was something there that was missing. There was something that wasn't quite right. And then I discovered fill in the blank. I discovered alcohol. I discovered drugs. I discovered food. I discovered some other things, other behaviors. And then I felt okay. And that's what addiction is. Addiction is something that takes a person who's really hurting and a bit broken, and they've discovered something that makes them feel okay, then now they could simply survive. Um, and that's a mechanism that they believe over time is the only way that they could get through their lives. Um, and all we need to do is somehow convince them, and it's not an easy thing to do, that there's a way to live your life that's more wholesome, more genuine than you're escaping through these means. Um, you are, um, you're running away from your life. And, and as a result of that, if someone begins to see that there are other people who've done it, they could begin to do it themselves. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of healing. I only wish that whoever asked that question, I only wish that you had an opportunity to meet people um, who've literally struggled for years with any form of an addiction and then made their way to the other side. And almost all of them, by the way, um, which I love this concept, almost all of them will say at the end of the story that I wouldn't have it any other way. If you ask me, like, would I, if I could have avoided the suffering in order to, to never become an addict, um, would that be okay? Um, and most of them would say, like, it was worthwhile to go through the pain that I went through um, in order for me to get to the place that I am now. The enlightenment that I have, the sense of well-being and connectedness to myself was worth all the pain in the world. And, uh, and, and that's what it's like. So whoever asked that question, seek out that individual who could tell you that and say that one day they've converted that, that pain into purpose and meaning, and, it's, and it's, it's all been worth it. And that statement, I'll never, I wouldn't have it any other way, is a statement that you'll hear from people who've been to the darkest parts of the earth um, and have made it out the other side, and now they could relate to themselves, relate to Hashem, and relate to everybody else. Dr. Perlman, a very interesting question. Let's take it from a different angle. What would you tell to a spouse who's dealing with someone who's unraveling and getting through their hardships of life. You know, people get married and they're 25 and they're 30 and they start having this, oh my gosh, this is what happened to me when I'm a child. And they start working this very hard process, which could take months, years, decades. Yeah. What advice or what physics could you tell somebody who's married to somebody who's doing this type of work? Right. Well, first of all, it's grueling on a spouse and we shouldn't at all try to pretend like it's not. Um, number one, to live with a spouse who struggled for so many years 
is, is as painful as it gets. Um, but I think it gets even more painful when they start getting better um, because you start noticing and realizing how much you missed out on and what life you could have had and what experience you might have shared together had they been in a better place all those years. Um, and I think first and foremost, you need to acknowledge to yourself and get those supports because it is, it's not a simple task to journey with someone who is fractured in this way that we're speaking about in this moment. Um, they're going to need their own supports. I've actually seen one of the, one of the bigger struggles, um, and there are much higher rates of divorce once one of the spouses goes into recovery. Because, or, or let's call it healing, let's not call it recovery for a second, is because they get all enlightened and they experience this sense of, now I see, I see the world through clear eyes and all they want is to let everyone else in their life know that there's a better way. And they often put a lot of pressure on the wrong people. And instead of having compassion for a spouse who, you know, who was there with them through all the dysfunction, they start getting pretty judgmental towards that spouse and saying, look at me, I'm doing all this work, I'm all enlightened, um, and life is beginning to feel good. Um, why don't you join me? Um, and I often find that becomes a, a primary source of contention in a marriage, that the spouse who is there supporting them for years and years on end, all of a sudden gets like the, the tough end of the stick, um, where they're not acknowledged for everything that they've done and then they become criticized for the fact that they're not, they're not evolved enough with the spouse. I remember like the first time I learned this idea, um, I was working with, with a man who was a, a cocaine addict um, for years, like 20 years of just insane living. Um, and then he went into recovery. And I remember his wife sort of came in like a few months later saying, like, I, I want my old husband back. Like this new guy is grumpy and he's no fun to be around. And when he was on Coke, he was just a happier guy. And it sort of personified like the struggle that you're talking about, the question, it's a great question. It's a valid question. Um, and I think if anything, that when someone starts getting better, they need to be, become really sensitive to the people who've been there through that whole journey when they weren't doing so well um, and understand that they have their journey to take as well. They live through that insanity um, and that became their norm. The insane became the normal for them. Um, and now you're trying to uh, become normal and functional and it takes some time to, to catch up. It's not, a, it's not a simple journey. It's a very stressful time yeah, when the spouse uh, goes into therapy. This is a big, big topic. I, I personally know quite a few people that, that have this, this issue. I don't think we pay enough attention to it. When it's very hard for a spouse to know that their, their spouse, let's say for a wife, to know that her husband is going to therapy. They don't understand that depth of the trauma as well. That's another problem, you know I mean? Right, right, right. You feel left out and you feel like, well, well, why can't you tell me? Why are you going, you know, paying someone a ridiculous amount of money and sharing your life with them as opposed to sharing it with me? Um, and it's, it's, it's quite lonely. And we need to pay attention to that. It's not something we should ignore. Um, when, when couple, one of, of a couple is going into therapy, we really need to pay attention. To it. I'm, so I'm going to try to go a little bit quicker because I'm getting so many questions. They're really good ones. I'm sorry. I, I want to hop around. Is that okay, Dr. Perlman? Anytime. Can we go, on, can we go like in hyper mode now? Oh, yeah, like, sure. Like heroin mode? Heroin mode? Can we try it? Heroin slows you down. <laughs> cocaine is the hyper mode. Okay. Let me sniff and then we'll go okay, to the next let's, one. Let's, yes, let's do cocaine. Let's go. Let's do cocaine. 
I don't know how you're going to answer this question. I'm just going to put it out because somebody texted it. Hi, question for Dr. Akiva. I have been through enormous amounts of abuse, and the most damaging to me was the many years of horrible sexual abuse. I've been in therapy for many years, and I'm growing tremendously. People are telling me that I need to forgive my abusers in order to heal, but I simply cannot find the space in me to forgive them. Is that true, that forgiveness is the most important part of the healing process? I would never recommend to anyone that they need to forgive someone who's harmed them in that way um, as a standard to say that you need to forgive that individual. I think that as a part of the process, it would be a wonderful place to arrive at where you could say, I actually can either understand or forgive. Um, but to make that the standard that we need to arrive at a place where I'm not healthy until I forgive that individual. Um, I think that's a very toxic idea. I'm not sure. Um, who's sharing that idea. It, it's something that, it's a symbol of health. When we get to a place where we understand why we went through what we went through and how to use that in our lives for some purpose and meaning and positivity, then we could begin to contemplate the other and say, okay, maybe I could see them as an entity outside of myself. But to make that the standard that you need to forgive a person who's deliberately harmed you, um, I think that's, that's only an individual could arrive at that conclusion themselves. No one should enforce that or even superimpose that on any human being. So if you're mad at your abuser, continue to be mad and hope that one day you get to a place where you don't feel the need to continue to be mad. But, but hold on to it so long as you need to. I just want to say one last thing. It's from, again, being vulnerable, being honest on the program. Things that I've been through from people that wronged me it's not that I wanted to forgive them, but once I felt like I came to terms with it over the course of many, many years, it was sort of a tetso, sort of like happened by itself. And you realize that you let it go. That was just my yeah. personal experience. I'm not Listen, if you could accept your own humanity and your own flaws, it's a lot easier for you to begin to accept others. Um, and the heal, a part of forgiveness starts internally. It starts in your own heart that you could forgive yourself for some of your own actions. Um, this, there's a young man I work with also um, who had a history of his own sexual abuse. He was abused by an older, an older Bacher as well. Um, but he in turn, which is a fairly common phenomenon, um, he experimented with some other people um, trying to make sense of all of it. And, and that's a part of himself that he can't, he can't forgive that element. Um, and, and for him, because of that, he's still holding on to the rage of the person who's hurt him. If anything, he's, he's aligned himself with that individual to make sense of it. And because he can't forgive himself, he certainly can forgive the other as well. Um, but forgiveness begins in our hearts first and then extends itself to others. But you can never forgive another if you can't forgive yourself for, for the things that we do to survive. Doesn't make it okay, by the way. I'm not creating any excuses for bad actions. I wanna do one, one last live question and then I think Manachem and I have a few other questions that we didn't get to. I want to do one last one. Moishi. Hello. Who doesn't know Moishi Norman, world famous. Wow. Hey, Moishi, how are you? Good to see you, Akiva. Good to see you. So, you know what a tremendous influence you've had on the mental health community, on the free mental health community. And, you know, we were in, the, in your first class, yeah. uh, break it, breaking you in, but you really broke us in uh, to the profoundness of, of uh, the field. I want to know from you if you can tell us, you know, the long, the long-awaited question that we've all been wondering: How is it 
that you have the capacity to have such deep, boundless compassion for every person who, who you meet and who comes into your presence. There must be so many difficult personalities out there who you, you encounter, and, and every one of us just seems to feel so special in your presence. How is it that that happens? Right. Well, I, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the assumption um, that I'm capable of doing that. Um, I definitely work very hard on connecting to the person as opposed to the action. Um, and I think that, that that's the vehicle that helps me um, connect to any form of pain is that, that if I, I had, there was an exercise that I once learned from a, a psychologist, Brian Laguerre. Brian Laguerre is a very special guy. Um, he worked at OL when I started out my career and he had specialized in treating borderline personality disorder at the time. And he had asked us as early on to rewrite our life story where we would turn out to become a borderline, where um, the final conclusion would be that, that we possess the qualities and the traits of a person who's that desperate in their lives. And I remember, so we all did it. We took a couple hours to rewrite our story. And inevitably the story was filled with trauma and abandonment and, and horrific one story after the next where we then became a person who was that desperate. Um, and that, that exercise taught me so much about trying to connect with other people is that if we look a little bit beyond the way they, they manifest in the world, the way that they present themselves to everybody else, and we try to connect with their humanity, it's not so hard to understand why people do some pretty terrible things. Um, simply because they're trying to survive like the rest of us and what they need to overcome in order to survive is a lot more challenging than anything I've ever had to face. And so long as I could connect to that idea, then I have access to the person. And having access to the person is much greater than having access to understanding why they're doing what they're doing, because the person's much more important. Um, but Moshe, between me and you, I fail at this many times. And there are people that, that I get judgmental of, that I have. Not between, me, not between me and you, you haven't. No, I haven't, because I love you and I care about you. But others, others, um, we try our best. We try our best to maintain a sense of, of real human connectedness. And it's, it's not an easy task, um, but that's our job. That's not only our job as a therapist, it's our job as, as, as people um, to try to see other people um, and not just look at the way they, they act, but look at who they are. Um, and that to me is if we're capable of doing that, we could connect to virtually anybody because we all know what it's like to be sad. We all know what it's like to feel abandoned. We all know what it's like to feel desperate. We just may not know what it's like to feel those things on the extreme levels that the people that we work with often feel, but we know all of those emotions and we need to find a way to connect with them because that's, that's, that's the portal by which we could begin to see other people. Okay, going go, going Thank back you. to yeah, going back to what we discussed Thank before. You want to continue, Marshy? Going back to what we discussed before about the the spouses that they're in recovery and they start seeing new light. Um, how to deal with a spouse? Um, the question is also how to deal with your own kids if you see them doing or um, going in those directions, which you're like very clearly that's not what you want and you want to impose and come from the other side while you're in recovery, how do you, how do you uh, 
interact with the with the two with the kids. Yeah. I, I think we need to start with knowing that that however they're acting, it's not by chance. Um, they're attempting to communicate either with themselves or with other people. Um, but kids who are really struggling and they're acting in, in pretty bad ways, um, we need to start asking ourselves questions like why and what's contributing to this and how could we gain access to what it is that they're trying to share with us as opposed to simply reacting to the behavior itself. If we only look at the behavior, we're going to lose the person. Um, so we need to start with that understanding that when a kid is acting out one way or another, it's, it's on purpose. It's deliberate. Um, there's something behind it. And, and it's our objective to try and understand what it is that's causing that behavior. Um, and how could we access it? And sometimes as parents, it's too hard for us to begin to access it. We're too close to, it's too close to home. It's too much of a reflection of who we are. Um, so sometimes we need to employ some help with others. And again, that's not only in the form of therapists, but that's in, in the form of, of other people. But, but the idea, and I have a very, very hard time reading some of these articles that like, oh, there's this great kid and everything is going wonderfully for him and everything is intact. And then all of a sudden he had a smartphone for the weekend and then he's an atheist um, or he's, you know, he, he's a great kid. And there was one kid in his class who gave him a drink and now he's a raging alcoholic. Um, we missed the absolute nuance of the story we missed the complete story. We're just focusing on, on one aspect. And we need to look deeper into what's really happening. And usually there's a story. Not usually, there's always a story. I've never, I've worked with addicts for years. And, and not only to addicts, I've worked with people who are suffering for years. And never have I met a person who's suffering simply because they're suffering. That, that doesn't exist. Um, people, people suffer and do, you know, engage in behaviors that are harmful for, for a reason. And it's our objective to figure out what the reason is and how could, we, how could we help them? How could we help them heal in that space? Okay, let's try to get in another question if we could. That's okay? Sure. Are you falling asleep? I'm We're up good. all night anyway. My kid's up all night, so it's fine. I can go <laughs> to four in the morning. I have no problem. If you don't mind, if you hear screaming in the background, it's fine. <laughs> We're good. We're good. I don't feel fulfilled from regular routine living. I'm not sure why but I need to turn to other things to give me my thrill, my phone, my work. We're not talking about like heavy addictions, just the busy stuff. Distractions. I, distractions. How do I stop and get back on track to do what I want to do, to refocus myself, to my spouse? <laughs> well, again, to me, real pathological behavior has a foundation. We all struggle with distractions. Um, everyone I know struggles with putting down their phone. Everyone I know struggles <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Usher, for that. Um, everyone I know has a hard time creating these boundaries, and we're living in a particularly challenging time with these things because life is so fast and we have access to virtually everything. Um, to me, so long as it's a distraction and it's not pathological, all we could do is remain engaged in the battle, um, remind ourselves on a regular basis, which I think most of us do. Um, we should put our phone away when we get home. And even though we know that a week from now, we're going to go get it and it's going to be completely forgotten. But hopefully we'll have the same conversation in, a, in another month. Um, so long as we're engaged in that battle, that's, what, uh, that's, what's, that's what's meaningful. Um, and, and again, I don't, I don't live in a world where, 
we're demanding perfection from people. I'm living in a world where we're demanding seeking, you know, a, a meaningful life for ourselves. And if we pay enough attention, we're going to realize that living a life of distraction is not, is not ultimately serving anybody's good. Um, you know, you speak to anyone about the news, like reading the news and we're just zombies, you know? And again, I'm not saying we're just zombies. I'm just a zombie. It's just the same stuff over and over again, but it's, it's calming enough, but I don't like to pathologize everything. There's certain things that are just, we're trying to get through the day. Everyone is pretty stressed out. It's okay to have things that so long as they're not maladaptive and dysfunctional that just give us some reprieve, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, like they have this concept called, um, you know, a dry drunk. Um, or we could apply that idea to many other people that you're not really a drunk, but every once in a while you have it and it has great significance. I think it's, a, it's an overblown idea. Uh, we need to find ways to distract ourselves uh, so long as it's not really harming us. Um, I think it's okay. Yeah, let's be a little bit forgiving. You know, and if we need to work on it, let's work on it. But that doesn't enter into the realm of, of this discussion, really. Uh, but we need to continue to work on it, you know myself and everybody else included it's uh, it's not an easy one you know okay dr perlman let's go to closing now uh yes. again i really want to thank you for coming on tonight dr perlman um you really machazik i have to be honest with you don't take anybody who came on before don't take it personally but you definitely took let's get real to a completely different level um i i hope that everybody watching this i'm going to tell them before they come on to watch this specific episode because this is what it's all about it's about getting real it's about getting vulnerable and really you know, being honest with people. And uh, I hope everybody on tonight really, really took it and really took the, the depth of what you were saying. I, I know from the text and the, the message I'm getting now, I could really concentrate because they don't stop flashing on my screen over here. But uh, I turned the screen to the side because it's too much. But really, really thank you again. Again, next week we have an amazing program. It's going to be the last program before we take a little break. We have Simon Jacobson's coming to discuss how to get ready for Tough Shin Pei Aleph after going through Tough Shin Pei the year that we went through this year. It was absolutely mind-blowing. So how do we take everything that we went through and everything that we learned and not just go back to regular and norm and, you know, we really grow from it and have a really spiritual young Narayim and really take it to the next level. So um, I think that's going to be an amazing share. I hope everybody who's here tonight, please come to that share and enjoy it and uh, really grow from it. Um, I got this question about 4,000 times during this share, so I'm going to actually answer it for the first time. Tonight's share is recorded and it's going to be posted on YouTube on Coach Menachem on www.menachemburnfeld.com. It's going to be on Spotify. It's going to be on Apple. It's going to be on Apple Podcasts. It's going to be, we have a phone number you can call to hear it later. And we're going to email it out to everybody. So everybody who was on tonight, who came on, we are going to send you the information. Please send it out to anybody that you think will be valuable. Um, I think it was an amazing cheer. Tonight's cheer was uh, number 22. So anybody, again, wants to hear the pre-recorded on the phone, it'll be up tomorrow. 732-924-8464. Again, it's 732-924-8464. Anybody who has any comments for Dr. Perlman or anybody, please email coachmanachem at gmail.com. We will forward his email. We will uh, blow it up and we will get blocked and we'll get spammed from him because he's going to get blown up after today's session. Um, again, I want to give a special thank you to our advertising sponsors, The Liquid Scoop. I want to give a special thank you to Chazak Rabiani for pushing us always on their programs. Uh, anybody, everybody, please go to Chazak work for more information about all their programs. I give a special thank you to Mrs. Mika So from COL Live and a real special thank you to JCN, Chayla Kaufman, and Shmuel Summer for always promoting us on digitally on all the programs. Coach Menachem, please give closing remarks. Dr. Perlman, I'm getting ready. I'm putting on my seatbelt for you. Just letting you know. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Perlman. It's really uh, amazing to uh, 
go through the experience. Not many times do we find a place where a person can come and take off his jacket and like and be real. And it's not easy to be real. Sometimes it's hard, and everybody with their own experiences, you know, A does, can't really understand B if B if A wasn't there. So uh, to be able to listen and uh, to see how somebody opens up and help other people to think for a moment, where am I? Uh, maybe am I I'm holding something back and eventually with the help of others to be able to grow. Uh, I just, uh, I heard of this idea. I don't know if it's from therapy or coaching, but the, to be able to sit down with the inner child. It's like sitting in the room together with the inner child and discussing what happened when they were six years old and basically asking for forgiveness because based on the age, there wasn't much that I was able to do. And I understand it and it's not something that I'm gonna get rid of. This feeling of whatever we went through, the, the, the experience, it's there. And um, um, somehow that can help a little bit of the healing. And again, it brings out what happened. It's not something that you hide. And when you feel it, you know what it is. It's not like something that's taboo. And uh, eventually it, 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 you get to the, the healing part, which we're not trying to run away from it. Like you mentioned that if you, if you want, you want to just uh, forget about everything, start fresh, that probably comes from shame, which we're not happy with our pasts. Um, again, if whatever the experience was, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to be happy, but to accept myself, whoever I am, I became who I am based on what I went through and I am happy with who I am. And hopefully um, it gives chizik for the oilam that that's for, for the for people that are working on it by sitting with it, by accepting it and by not denying it, eventually you can uh, feel a little bit better in the healing process. So again, thank you very much. And I want to thank everyone for coming on tonight and Oshi Shkoyev again. And uh, we'll hear a few words from yeah. Dr. Perlman. Just, just a couple of words. We really spoke a lot. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I really loved seeing uh, some of some of the, the, the crew, um, guys who I've um, like journeyed with in a very meaningful way, um, seeing you here. Um, and, even, and even some of the people I've worked with, um, seeing you here as well was like just a real special honor for me. I just want to um, share just two ideas, uh, one from the Kutzker and another one from uh, Viktor Frankl about suffering and transforming suffering into something that extends beyond the experience itself. So this is a quote from, from the Kutzker. Um, he said, three ways are open to man who is in sorrow. He who stands on a normal rung weeps. He who stands higher is silent. But he who stands on the utmost rung converts his sorrow into song. And when we think about the evolution of crying through silence, through singing, um, that is what we're aspiring to. That's the Kutzker's awareness that in the only way to get to that place of song, that place where you could truly dance with yourself with a sense of freedom, is to go through a journey of sorrow, silence, and then place of arrival where you could feel yourself all over again. 
And the intention of any form of pain in the world is not one where you, you were, like we saw that question before, where it's supposed to be one that you survive, but rather our intention is to take whatever we've been through and convert it into energy that is positive, convert it into a new way of seeing the world that then we could reach out and help others. We could create a safer environment for everybody else, for our families, a more aware, a more hopeful environment for everybody else. And it's not, it's not intended to remain in that space of, of sorrow and of weeping, but rather it's supposed to arrive at a place of dance and of song um, where it's an internalization of what you've been through and that brings you to a place of freedom. Uh, there was another idea that I just wrote down from, from Viktor Frankl, who wrote just a wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning. He was a man who made his way through the Holocaust, was a physician prior to that, um, and, and, was, and, and just developed a, a form of therapy as a result of his experiences in the camps. And he says, we must never forget that we may also find meaning in life, even when confronted with hopeless situation, when facing a fate that cannot be changed. For what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to, to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph, to, terms one, to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. Um, we're suffering life, everything that we're speaking about today. Um, I only could share it and I felt comfortable enough sharing it tonight in this forum because it's been a part of, a part of my journey that brought me to a place of comfort and a peace not a place where I, I stayed in that environment where, and I continue to, to live in that, that downtrodden place where I, now I could say through a, a meaningful journey and the journey is not over. We continue to, we continue to journey forth, but where you turn something, you convert it into a positive energy. And then you could be in a place where you could help others. And to me, the greatest gift I was ever give, given was some of the pain that I've been through because it permits me to be in this space with all of you. It permits me to be in this space with my family, with the, my relationships, with the people that I work with. And to me, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. And it was only through the tragedy. It was only through hardship that brought me to this place. And I, I just want to end with a, with a bracha to us all, that we find a way to connect with ourselves without the shame, without the sense of secrecy, and to know that there's a world out there that is willing to listen. Um, and then we could turn all of that into something positive where we could look ourselves in the mirror and be okay with what we see reflecting back at us. And it should be a year filled with, with healing and happiness and forgiveness and kindness um, and an experience where maybe God willing, we'll have an opportunity uh, to share this space again. But, but again, thank you all for, for being here for this opportunity. It was a real, it was a real honor. Thank you, Dr. Pro, for coming tonight. Happy anniversary. Thank Somebody, you. Same time, same place next week. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. All the best.